Hey everybody, welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best, and we're going back to our roots this week, our super soldier roots. We have on a scholar of anti-fascism, Devin Zane Shaw, the author of The Philosophy of Anti-Fascism, and a professor of philosophy at Douglas College in British Columbia. Thanks for being here, Devin. How's springtime in Canada treating you? It's springtime, at least in this part of Canada. Um, and so uh, it's nice. I garden, which is a now that's a big reveal, I guess. I'm not sure I ever mentioned it on a podcast. So we're getting into gardening season. So for me, that's good. What are you planting? Uh, it's uh, a variety of stuff, but uh, kale, cucumbers, tomatoes, shishito peppers. That's kind of the big event, mm. really. Nice. Now I'm starving and we have to do this whole interview. Um, <laughs> You might have to take a break for a cliff bar a few minutes through. Uh, but I want to have you on the show. And, you know, we're called the Antifada, which is not a name I chose, but it's, it's the name we have. It's a combination of Antifa and Intifada. And we've never had an episode about Intifada. And we've had some shows about, like, white supremacy and fascism. But we've never had an episode, as far as I remember, purely on Antifa. So... I'm glad to finally have an episode with you, especially because you're part of the collective, which I think, at least for North America, does the best writing on the theory and the history of anti-fascism, which is a three-way fight. So uh, if you wouldn't mind just starting out and letting people know what three-way fight is, what your outlook is. Yeah, so the three-way fight um, group and and blog that they run it's not really a blog like when i submit pieces to them it gets better peer review than some academic publications i get but it's on you know wordpress um that group of uh individuals came out of anti-racist action um, and some other various movements you know one of the major texts for them is is um, called confronting fascism which is presently published on by chris blebedeb uh, a publisher out of montreal and, you know, one of them came out of, um, one of the authors of that text came, came out of the Sojourner Truth Organization, for instance. A different author from that was involved in, in a lot of different stuff. Um, so that's one of them I just named is Don Hammerquist. The other one is Jay Sakai, um, who I don't know a lot of the biography of, but Sakai is well known in some circles for writing the book Settlers. Um, and so there's, there's a group that kind of emerged around that. Um, I've been writing for them. Uh, in the last two years, after they heard about my book and, and I got to talk to some of them online um, through email correspondence and various things like that and started writing for them. So for a long time, I never even said, you know, I, I, I never even really said I'm, you know, a member of the group or whatever, but I've been writing for them for two years. So I imagine that, you know, I suppose I am. But before that, I did use their work quite heavily. I'm one of the few academics who was using it. To me, I was drawn to it because it reflected some of the things I had been thinking about for a long time, um, largely around, they, they cite their theoretical origins around the problem of thinking about uh, right-wing movements getting involved in anti-globalization struggles and trying to consider the status of these movements. Um, I remember, you know, long before I was ever, uh, you know, a professional philosopher and I was still just working my way through school. I remember the Battle of Seattle. I remember the, the events around that. I remember debates, even though I must have been way out in the countryside for most of these people. But I remember this stuff coming up in debates about, well, what, what do you do with the kind of like Buchananites that showed up? And um, I was always of the position that, you know, uh, right-wingers showing up to this probably aren't going to be our allies in this regard, and they must be looking for something. And Years later, I f discover the three-way fight stuff in the book, like Confronting Fascism and some of the related documents, and I felt like I had really found something um, that reflected some of the views, but I had not seen um, uh, laid out in a, in a systematic form. That doesn't mean in, over the years I haven't seen it. I just had never really... You know how activism is, right? You read lots of pamphlets. These things come and go because you pass them around, and it wasn't until much later where I started actually gathering the stuff together to look at it as a coherent um, theory. And, you know, so I use that for my book, Philosophy of Anti-Fascism, and a couple of related works. And, and in the last couple of years, as again, as I said, I've written a couple pieces, including an analysis of um, the far-right groups 
um, as vigilantes or system oppositional groups, because we saw in the wake of the George Floyd, um, Breonna Taylor uh, protests and the general uprising against the police, we saw um, sort of white right-wing vigilante groups emerge. Um, I wrote a piece then later about, um, well, a couple, but I'll just name a couple other that trickle to the top here, is that I wrote a piece, um, Seven Theses on the Three-Way Fight for them. And then I also um, more recently wrote a, uh, an extensive review of Shane Burley's um, Why We Fight. So what is the three-way fight? So the three-way fight it conceives of um, fascist and far-right groups as a potentially ma- mass or popular um, insurgent movement. So that departs from a lot of the, the orthodox or traditional views of fascism as, as kind of the lackeys of the most extreme factions of capitalism. So for that, you know, that can be found in Dimitrov's um, essays from 1935, which was the common turn, uh, the Communist International's um, popular front position. It, it reemerged with the um, Black Panthers in the late 60s with their popular front approach. And the three-way fight departs from that approach by looking at it, fascism that is, or the far right, depending on how you want to look at it, as an insurgent movement with a mass base. So they're not the first. So this is my my recent work, which is very slow um, because I'm doing union work for my my local at where I work, is looking at antecedents or precedents for that. And so I view it as, um, for instance, I call it the crossroads of 1935, which is Dimitrov or the kind of model of white supremacy proposed by the Wages of Whiteness by W.E.B. Du Bois in Black Reconstruction. And of course, it's an artificial date. It's not like he planned to publish it in 35, but it's just that it's interesting. We have both these selections of texts coming out from the same year. Mm. And then more recently, I've noticed that, you know, um, I've been reading a lot of James and Grace Lee Boggs. And James Boggs articulates a similar position of looking at fascism as a, as a mass movement of white supremacy, which runs against the, the position of it being fascism as being um, a kind of top-down um, organization that's manipulated by, you know, capitalists at the top. And that, you know, if you go back and you read Dimitrov's original model for how it works is that, well, why is it that non-capitalists are inv- uh, involved? Why is there a mass base to this? Well, it's presented as demagoguery, false consciousness, etc. And I, I, I think there's a very limited, it's a very limited picture of the psychology of why people um, get into fascism or even the material, um, even the kind of material bases that would drive that kind of psychology, because I don't want to make it sound like it's a kind of idealistic picture. But I think Du Bois really hand, like really covers it quite well and Boggs picks it up. And I don't know if he had read Black Reconstruction when he was writing this, it had kind of disappeared from the historical, you know, from discussions for a long time and then circled back um, around the time Boggs was writing in the late 60s. So I don't know, but um, it's just a rep- it's a repeated or rediscovery of the same view of there are material reasons why white supremacy and why people opt for being part of a white supremacist movement. And it's the creation of a kind of system where um, white workers have... Um, gain both status, um, economic and political status on the basis of a racist system of segregation. And so these are, these are two different models for understanding it. I think there's a more compelling um, answer in, um, in Du Bois and, and Boggs and, and the three-way fight. I've only touched on one aspect of it now. The three-way fight is, of course, so there's this right-wing insurgent movement there is the state or there is liberalism as an ideology. And then there is uh, revolutionary leftism or militant anti-fascism. And those are the three different corners. And part of it is identifying what they have in common. So I call them lines of adjacency between each of the points and where they differ. So in some sense, you could say liberalism and, and militant movements have a, an idea of egalitarianism, even if it's wildly different, right? And so there is some ideological connection there in the sense that you'd say, well, how is it the liberal anti-fascists and militant anti-fascists can ally? Well, ideologically, the, the concept of equality or egalitarianism, 
even if it is different and if you tried to isolate it as systems, um, pro provides a line of uh, a line of adjacency between the two, even if they're going to be differences. So differences including how to handle um, the threat of the far right. So for militants, um, that's the diversity of tactics. And for um, liberal anti-fascists, very commonly, it's the idea that you want to use um, democratic you're going to appeal to democratic norms or rely on police power or state power um, to curb a threat when it becomes when it reaches a certain threshold. At the same time, it so you know I don't want to explain way too much about this, but at the same time, it the three-way fight kind of helps us understand the kind of liberal horseshoe theory that's out there that says that at the extremes, the at the ends of the political spectrum, the extremes meet, and what they're identifying here is that what. The only thing I would say that far-right groups and militant leftist groups have in common is that they are insurgent groups challenging state power. Um, and so there's a connection there. That's a line of adjacency, even though I don't want that connection to overtake any of the really important stuff, which is both organizational ide and ideological um, fundamental differences there. And then finally, I talk about in the book quite extensively that the far-right or white supremacy, historically speaking, as, as evinced in a thing I call white settlerism um, and liberalism, their line of adjacency is that um, they are both components of what I call settler state hegemony. So they get together and, and between those two things, they have been what has propped up the settler colonial state as it's expanded in North America. So I'm, ta I'm talking about North America in particular, whether that's the Canadian project of settler colonialism or the U.S. project. And of course, there are still profound differences between white settlerism and liberalism in its own ideological parameters in the sense that liberalism um, has, in some ways, thanks to the long push of civil rights movements for decades now, and liberation movements has adjusted um, and tried to transform itself where I argue that there are ways in which it keeps racism within a system, but in colorblind or color neutral terms that can be codified into law in that way. Um, whereas I would say the far right or white settlerism is can be detected as being insurgent and different from liberalism in the sense that it's directly anti-bourgeois in its political and culture, anti-bourgeois political and cultural power. So that's a whole lot right there. Mm -hmm. um, but it describes the fact that there are many different facets and you can't just say one is really um, the, you know, the lackey of the other or that, that you know, it's trying to find... Um, how all these different groups work within the same terrain of these settler colonial um, states and the and the struggle against them. But basically, the three-way fight is, you know, revolutionary communists or anarchists versus the bourgeois state versus the far-right fascists. Yes. <laughs> That's a very good short summary of it after I went through all that. That's the three ways. But, um, and, you know, I think Mark Bray's Anti-Fascist Handbook does a really good job talking about what anti-fascism is now and historically. And your book really raises some much deeper questions about, I mean, really, like, there's one chapter about punching Nazis, using French existentialism to go into the ethical dilemma of punching a Nazi and why you think Sartre and and De Beauvoir would you know, s support that. So if, if Mark Bray's Anti-Fascist Handbook has left you wanting more, I highly recommend Philosophy of Anti-Fascism. So we'll talk about some of the stuff you get into, but one question about defining fascism I wanted to ask you early on. You mentioned uh, Du Bois, um, and I think, uh, you know, I learned a lot about Du Bois from the last chapter of your book about this, what was the term, uh, like white uh, propertyhood or something? It's the white possessive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the idea of whiteness as this property that they're worried about Jews and people of color stealing from them. I think there's been a little bit of a debate bubbling online about this kind of orthodox Marxist or, um, you know, kind of an older European communist definition of fascism as like this historical counter-revolutionary corporatist movement that's only really fascist if it's from the fascist region of France. Um, 
versus like this discussion about what fascism is from black revolutionaries in the United States, specifically George Jackson. And I think they're really two different views. And I, I got a little bit of a sense from reading your book that maybe you're a little bit more sympathetic to this George Jackson line that fascism is this inherent thing in um, settler colonial capitalist democracy that kind of gets like called in to reassert the social hierarchy. Do you think I have that basically right? I think the I think the it's it's funny you mentioned George Jackson because um, um, because one of the people that really built his concept of fascism out of Jackson um, that has criticized the three way fight is Kevin Rashid Johnson. So he's an, he's a black revolutionary who's writing from prison, and he criticized some of it because of our rejection of the classical definition. Um, and so, um, you know, at least from someone from that coming out of that perspective, uh, has has criticized our uh, well, at least my position, because he heard my he heard one of my podcasts and and did a response with a different podcast. Um, and it 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 really comes down to that that definition he adopts from Jackson, which is relatively close both to the Panther, um, the Panthers, Panthers use of it. And then, and then the Dimitrov line from the popular front, I'm going to admit George Jackson is, is a figure that, um, I've been planning on writing about cause I want to get further into it because I think there are elements of Jackson's work that are exactly how you describe it in the sense that he, he views that insurgent or insurrectionary character, um, of that. And I think the I think the the main thing is the whole it it all rests especially in your sentence there on what the meaning of called in is is it that it's called in in the sense that there are people who sort of like it's time to order the foot soldiers out or is it that there's a, a mass popular base endemic to settler colonialism that's willing to view its fight for its material interests as it views it in really racist and sexist terms. Um, which I think is really important and, and needs to be stressed more is that the same idea that comes from W.E.B. Du Bois about the wages of whiteness really is about the advancement of, of white male workers within um, a certain paradigm of capital accumulation, a kind of deal they broker there, and that, that, that's got racist components to it, and it also has um, gendered components, so gender oppression present um in the in a division a gender division of labor that comes with it um so in some way i i kind of don't answer your question and kind of do answer your question in the sense that i think that there's a lot to jackson and i think that it you could build the argument in a way that's amenable to looking at not just as the u.s is the most advanced which sometimes i think he says most advanced um uh realization of fascism that is here but rather um, he's he's building a language of criticizing settler colonialism in general by arguing that in fact it's different than the Euro communist um, Euro communist view. So you know, while I said that you could take the Popular Front concept um, both in the Panthers and in Jackson and, and sort of trace it back in terms of its verbiage right back to Dimitrov's position, I think there is a there is an aspect where the application is in a different context, and we can see that. Uh, as we trace through the 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 politics and the and the and the philosophy behind that, yeah, and I would tend to agree more with this position that fascism is this more or less autonomous revolutionary or like uh, you know aspiring to be revolutionary, aspiring to be mass movement that seeks to revolutionary society through some kind of like you know palingenesis, rebirth of the nation. And so, but if that's the case, then if we look at the Trump era, for example, Trump was not a fascist. He was, you know, a reactionary right-wing demagogic pol politician. And then there was this like alt-right Trumpist movement that was fascist, that did seek to create a mass movement. But if you if we look at anti-fascism from the last, uh, since 2016, when like the, the emergence of Trump really made it kick off in North America... The idea is that the alt-right and Trump are like working together. They're both fascists. They they are working together to create a fascist America. The police are also fascist. Um, so do, is, is drawing these distinctions, is defining fascism in this kind of particular way, uh, kind of setting you against what most anti-fascists tend to say or think? 
Well, I I mean it's helpful to it's helpful to to you know define um, these terms just real quickly. Is that you know when I when I use these, you already raised it here. Is that um, you're thinking of the definition that's in my book and that and that I use in other work is that it defines fascism fascism as a social movement involving a relatively autonomous and a surgent, insurgent and potentially mass base driven by an authoritarian vision of collective rebirth. That's your palingenesis, right? Mm-hmm. That challenges bourgeois institutional and cultural power while re-entrenching economic and social hierarchies. And that that those movements are in, are they grow out of a broader far right niche. And I use Matthew Lyons um, definition. So from insurgent supremacists. Um, as far the far right is inclusive of political forces that regard human inequality as natural, inevitable, or desirable, and reject the legitimacy of the established political system. And in some sense, I think you could make the case. The difficult thing is someone running within the a presidential race is hard to say that they reject the legitimacy of the established political system. But I do think there's an aspect where you could say that Trump ideologically speaking, I think was fairly obviously far right um, in the regard human inequality as natural, inevitable or desirable. And certainly that was what made his work or made his campaign amenable to, you know, alt-right thinkers. Um, In terms of, am am I, is this position a departure from, um, you know, anti-fascist groups? I mean, I know some people that are when we go into these discussions and, and they'll say, yeah, that sounds, you know, in militant anti-fascism. I think there is some ways in which three-way, the three-way fight position has been, um, people are, are familiar with it, although it doesn't necessarily show up in, um, like, for instance, academia. But I think, you know, you read a lot of the books that have come out recently about it and, and people have encountered it or they've adapted some of it to their own to their own use or their own concept, right? Shane Burley, um, you know, I mean, Matthew Lyons is in the, is in, is involved in three-way fight. Um, you know, and they reprint someone like Shane Burley. I know that Mark Bray is familiar with it just from reading his book. You know, I'm just looking at my shelf. Quite a few people to keep listing it would kind of get boring probably. Um, but I think, you know, I would say that one difference that I would accept is that I'm really hesitant to put the fascist label in things where I'm happier to say there's lots of far right stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's important. And I, I think that it mean I think that it's important because um, sometimes what happens is that people get derailed about, well, what does fascism mean? And, far right is a little easier to hone in on because it's it's broader and and less committed to arguing about well is this group openly racist or is it whatever the core point about the far right that i really want to pull out that's important to my own work is trying to explain what it what its movement how its movement works and in some way more recently trying to get closer to what the class base that helps define its ideology happens to be. And so um, in the seven theses on the three-way fight essay that I've done, I'll just refer to it and say this one was number five. It's far-right movements are system loyal when they perceive that their entitlements of white supremacy can be advanced within bourgeois or democratic institutions, and they become insurgent when they perceive that these entitlements cannot. And perception's important because it doesn't mean that they aren't getting these entitlements, but they perceive that they aren't. Um, But it it means that we have to look at a movement that has an inside-outside strategy that's fluid, and that it, and that in in a lot of ways, in my own view, its class base is going to be what um, Broma calls the worker elite, or that the other group that's classically called uh, the petty bourgeoisie. Um, and so, in a lot of ways, it's not necessarily, it's not anti-capitalist, even though you know you would say, classically speaking, in Marxist terms, it's anti-bourgeois. Um, but it is, it is in some sense, seeking to re-entrench capitalism or capital accumulation or a system of entitlements back to its own advantage. And in that regard, I, I think it's really important to look at a lot of these movements in the way that they are, they throw their weight behind, um, uh, opposing indigenous struggle. So indigenous struggle in Canada is a major, um, a major struggle, 
um, so indigenous communities are are seeking um, more rights. They're seeking nationhood. They're seeking various things here. Um, they're seeking uh, to stop pipelines running through their land and doing things like once a pipeline takes that land, all that land that's on their that's you know that they hold um, claim to is disrupted and interrupted and polluted. So they're obviously thinking, well, we need to stop this because this has a multi-generational effect on our ability to, for autonomy and control over our, um, over our, our lands, right? And, and so a lot of these groups kind of pop up, far-right groups, you can really track them as they're all against this because they, they perceive this as interrupting um, the kind of rights and entitlements that they have. When, and they're not, you know, it's not oil workers and it's not capitalists, although there's convergences there that are doing this. But it's kind of a far-right you know, hey, these people are these people are fighting for rights, and we need to stop that because um, it over it overturns the kind of natural hierarchy of settler priorities that they believe um, to be inscribed within the system. And legally speaking, it is inscribed in the system. So let me just cap that and say one thing I would just say is, from a philosophical perspective, I think the important part as a philosophical exercise is always to question the kind of labels we attach. And question our own conclusions. And I think that's one of the things I repeatedly go back to is I can say we can identify a lot of things as far right and we can persistently test how they behave within that broader um, ambit of organizing and ideology um, where I'm less inclined to put the fascist, to call something fascist because one, I'm, I'm still in the midst of a project trying to clarify sort of the meaning of that term and how we might think it outside of Eurocommunism. And two, you know, it's it's a label that becomes its own kind of semantic debate that sometimes cannot be helpful. Uh, yeah, so let's do another semantic debate that um, may or may not be helpful. Um, uh, moving on to the other side of the three-way fight, uh, what is the distinction between militant anti-fascism and liberal anti-fascism? Yeah, so this one, so I would say the the, the definition definitional differences between them is that um, militant anti-fascism upholds the diversity of tactics. Um, it organizes as a form of community self-defense, which I would say ideally would aim to build um, reciprocal relationships with marginalized and oppressed communities. And I believe that it ought to recognize and uphold the revolutionary horizon of anti-fascist struggle, um, which is an anti-capitalist struggle and a anti-settler colonialism struggle. Um, I'm hesitant to use the word decolonial largely because I just think that decolonization needs to be led by um, and guided by the, the demands of indigenous struggle itself. And indigenous struggle and militant anti-fascist groups don't necessarily um, organize together. They don't necessarily not organize together at points. But, you know, I want to draw a distinction between the two groups about where leadership lies um, for that. And then for liberal anti-fascism, I like Mark Bray's concise definition, um, which is, quote, a faith in the inherent power of the public sphere to filter out fascist ideas and in the institutions of government to forestall the advancement of fascist politics, end quote. So in some sense, that's liberal anti-fascist appeal to democratic norms. And they also assume that law enforcement will apply force to repress fascism when it constitutes a legitimate threat. One other thing I've tracked that I think is interesting and important in academic circles is that we're seeing um, liberal anti-fascists in light of the feeling that the moment of crisis from January 6th has passed um, are reverting to a paradigm of extremism where they're positioning their, their anti-fascist position against um, various kinds of extremism, quote unquote, uh, which are both left extremism and right extremism. And in my view, that just aligns with the interests of police forces within the state and should be opposed. Right. Um, like, help me out if I am misunderstanding this, but if militant anti-fascism is primarily defined by a diversity of tactics, then if somebody is a liberal and believes in you know, the state and the police suppressing fascism in some way, but also supports their local Antifa, like believes in punching Nazis, then are they both? Um, because you know, basically what I'm getting at is I think that there are a lot of liberal anti-fascists who support a diversity of tactics, but they don't have the revolutionary horizon. 
Yeah, so that's a discussion um, I actually did have in, in trying to work on these definitions with Matthew Lyons. We had a bit of back and forth. Um, and, you know, he raised that same point. I, th- I think he's right. But, you know, in some sense, definitionally speaking, that's why, that, that's why the sentence there in that definition that I go with is I say it ought to recognize and uphold the revolutionary horizon. So it gives, there's an educational purpose. I see. Uh, within militant anti-fascism. And to be honest, I think people waver quite a bit. I think as people feel a larger threat, if they're liberal anti-fascists, at their core, they do they align with militants, right? It's kind of like, oh, well, as this gets, the temperature goes up, we're going to move over here. Ironically enough, if you're going through philosophy, this distinction is actually extremely clear. And there isn't nearly as much muddling um, of these differences. So if you go through liberal anti-fascism, Many of the main voices you get writing about fascism or anti-fascism that are the big names, they're liberal anti-fascists. So that's Jason Stanley, How Fascism Works. Um, I think that's really obvious from Judith Butler's book, The Force of Nonviolence, um, which I'm working on writing a, um, an essay talking about. Again, another one of those things I'd promise that I'll, I'll finish sometime this summer, um, but for uh, all the other work I'm doing organizing um, within our, our local so I'm, I'm really hoping I can get that out there and finish that. Um, but I think that dis- that distinction is actually a lot easier to see in academic writers mm-hmm. on this, where when it comes down to on-the-ground organizing, it's much more fluid. And um, uh, part of this is actually, uh, I feel like, and I'm not going to name names, but occasionally there are people who write about anti-fascism who I think have started to slip towards a, mili- a liberal anti-fascist direction. And then there's a way I'm quietly chiding them without directly calling them out because i think they're they're in that zone of um indeterminacy where they're not sure where they're going with it and so i hope that if they read it and think about it that they'll remember oh yeah i gotta i gotta tighten this up a little bit i guess to bring it to a more concrete example or a couple concrete examples you mentioned j6 i think the recent trucker convoy in ottawa is another good example of a far-right-led mobilizations taking some sort of more or less insurgent stance against the federal government of the United States and Canada, and then leaving leftists and anti-fascists to kind of wonder what to do. Like, I know in the United States, while Trump was trying to steal the election and Proud Boys were roaming around D.C. leading up to January 6th, and some people said, like, yeah, we should defend you know, the, the Capitol and state houses against Trump supporters. And then some anti-fascists said, no, I, I'm not interested in doing that. I, you know, I, I would defend the uh, residents of D.C. or I would stand with residents of, of D.C. against the Proud Boys, but I'm not interested in protecting the Capitol building. And then in Ottawa, there's been quite a lot of really good writing asking these questions of how to protest these right-wing truckers without also defending Justin Trudeau or defending the state. Do you have any thoughts on on these kind of uh, questions of anti-fascist practice? Yeah, I think they're really important questions, and I think that there's it's really healthy to debate that. Um, the the convoy stuff was, was interesting. I, I lived in Ottawa so um, for a long time. I don't anymore. Um, but, you know, I still have a lot of friends and comrades out there. And the... You know, the the, con- the convoy thing was interesting because it was um, the protest that did emerge had all the kind of contradictions that um, you're describing there in the sense that you'd have people out there blocking roads that are, you know, it's we're doing the job that the police should have done or that the government should have done. And then you, you did have militants out there that were like, no, we're just out here protecting communities. Um, and, but see, I, I wasn't there firsthand. I know. I know from reports back from people that this was going on, but I can't get into more detail than that just because I didn't, I wasn't around for it. But one thing that really stood out um, is that, you know, the convoys, they went right, especially in downtown Ottawa, they, they went right into the downtown core, which is, um, you know, quite a few people. Um, I, I think it was under the mistaken impression, because I saw some reports about this where it seemed that some people were saying this, is that, they had this mistaken impression that by disrupting the lives of the people that live in the downtown core, they're disrupting the people that work in the downtown core, which means that they don't really know who works in for the government in Ottawa, which is largely people that are out in the burbs. Um, but a side point is 
that it was it was explicitly not just aimed at parliament, but they were going out into neighborhoods and harassing people. And I think that that called it up a lot faster and gave it a lot more urgency, mm-hmm. at least than I perceived as what happened in, in D.C., where a lot of people, as, as I understand it, were saying were militants, not a lot. A lot of militants that, I, as I understood it, were saying this is a fight between the state and the right. So we we're going to stay out of this part. Um, and, you know, even though they seem to have completely stayed out of it, it was very quickly as the thing as J6 started falling apart is that you immediately saw conspiracy theories about false flags and Antifa uh, subversion and all this other stuff. Um, so, you know, it's a treacherous um, it's a treacherous uh, terrain there. But I think one of the things that really revealed it is, is again, there was, um, at least on the terms of the counter-protest against the convoy, there was, um, again, quite the mix of um, what you could say were, you know, liberal approaches that said this is a failure of the state and then militant groups. And, you know, again, in the best way you can do with those is to educate people. I think one of the main things that had to be, that has to be part of the educational program is to highlight the way that COVID denialism, which I view the convoy to be the kind of latest iteration of that, COVID denialist movements throughout this have, you know, sort of moved the goalposts of what they're denying um, and have evoked concepts of historical oppression. And, you know, people will go, well, gee, they're they're like a fight for rights, kind of like these things. And I always argue when they evoke things like being treated, you know, like the the symbol of the yellow star or up in Canada, you'd say people, they're talking about segregation. Um, it's not because they actually think that those things are bad in and of themselves. What they understand it is that they're being treated like they're the wrong, they're in the wrong spot of the natural hierarchy or the natural social order of things in their view. And so that's not actually anything we should sympathize with. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I have my criticisms of the way Trudeau and Biden and Trump have handled the pandemic, obviously, but these movements tend to be so obviously like there's the right wing core of it, but then they're also just incredibly antisocial, like this idea of, you know, anyone who's wearing a mask or people who get vaccinated uh, or like kids at school who are organizing for, you know, safer conditions at their school are sheeple or, you know, NPCs. You know, I don't even I don't know if like it's it's fascist. It's just like these people think that they're smarter and better than everyone around them. And maybe that's what leads to them, you know, harassing just residents of Ottawa, whereas they, you know, they think they're freedom fighters targeting the state, but they find themselves in conflict with just regular people. Uh, one one thing I'll I'll note, I saw um do you know Channel Five? It's like a, a YouTube channel. No, I'm not too familiar with it. I think the name sounds sounds familiar, but I'm oh, not it sure. used to be called All Gas No Breaks. It's a really big YouTube channel, really funny. They had an hour long documentary about the U.S. convoy, and you know I think Andrew Callahan, the the host of it, is is something of a left liberal, um, but his conclusions were really interesting. You know, and he interviews people with a lot of compassion. Like he lets people talk. He doesn't argue with them. He just lets you know he. He uh, really does a good job of, like, uh, you know, being a journalist at these events. And what the conclusion he came to is that these people on the convoy, they want to take over the government. They want to, like, topple the U.S. government. But they want to do so in conjunction with the police and the military, uh, which he just thinks is a joke. And then on top of that, they are totally afraid of their own shadow because they think that Antifa is lurking everywhere. And actually, at the end of the documentary, he uh, has footage of somebody from the convoy saying, we're not going to go to D.C. tomorrow because basically Antifa is going to infiltrate like on J6. So a lot of these system oppositional people who maybe have these insurrectionary aspirations of toppling the federal government also believe that the height of that movement, January 6th, where they broke into they fought their way through the police line and got into the Capitol building was all done by Antifa infiltrators, which I think is a really fun, uh, interesting dynamic that like Antifa's not even there, and yet they're sort of defeating or tempering this movement. As I saw it, it was just that it was they were trying to explain their defeat, right? Well, it didn't work, so what, what must have been the reason? Um, I, you know, I think there is something 
dangerous in that thinking too, of course, because it's always, it's, it plugs right into that kind of conspiracy thinking where there's always these kind of puppets pulling or people pulling the strings uh, behind the scenes. And a lot of people behind that are just puppets. And we know that can be, you know, really dangerous. Um, But it's, it's, it is a, it is a interesting contradiction. I'm not sure I saw too much of it emerge with the Canadian convoys. Um, But I think they're a really good instance too of, you know, with this concept of, you know, rising up against the state, but with quite a few aspects of the state. I think it really helps us understand some of the contradictions within that movement in the sense of its inside-outside character and helps us understand the sort of rebirth aspect or the palingenetic aspect is that they very commonly appeal to this kind of idea of being the kind of like true core citizenry of that state, right? And that everyone else is interlopers and that there's, you know, in the U.S. that's that's manifest by the kind of like um, what posse comitatus stuff mm-hmm. and then that theory that the well, I mean, like, you know, from uh, more extreme versions is, of course, the, the conspiracy theory of the Zionist occupied government. Um, but, you know, there's there's that kind of tension, right, of of appealing to being the natural bearers of that citizenship at the same time you have to come up with a theory of, well, how is it that that, in fact, this is you're you're against the modern iteration or the contemporary iteration of that state and that they do want to shore up some parts. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me that it's the police and the military because the roles that the police and military have played in um, stifling other, you know, liberation movements. Right. So one concept in your book that I hadn't really heard before. Uh, or at least not used in this way, is the parapolitical. The way you use it to describe fascism, I think it maybe can help us make sense of movements like COVID denialism that maybe doesn't have like a very coherent or set politics, but nonetheless tends to draw any participants in it towards the right. So, yeah, what do you mean by parapolitics or the parapolitical? Yeah, so... Parapolitics, in the way that I use it, comes from the work of Jacques Rancière, a French political theorist um, and egalitarian. So that's the theme. His work is the theme of part of chapter three and then part of chapter four about violence. Um, And he defines parapolitics as a form of political philosophy that reduces political conflict to a conflict of interests among different parts of the community. And the way that I specifically use it in the book is I talk a lot about how you see far-right movements present every single movement as merely the interests of some kind of group. So that's one way of them undermining the claims of of liberation groups um, that would be acting to fight the system. So you commonly find this in their writing where they, you know, they'll look at something like... uh, civil rights or liberation movements and say what they're really trying to do is just assert their group interests and all we're trying to do is assert our own group interests. And the dangerous part about that aspect of parapolitics is that is that it presents everything as, as, as merely just interests and that it undermines legitimate political claims of uh, oppressed peoples. And I think that's a really dangerous aspect because that kind of parapolitical discussion is not unique to the far right. Um, Ranciere doesn't use it to diagnose something like that. Ranciere says that's a that's a common current that runs through the history of Western political philosophy. So kind of some of the classic pictures of, um, of parapolitics and classical Western political philosophy are Aristotle and Hobbes. And they're different in some ways because Aristotle says because each group has its own kind of interests, what you want to do is um, install them to kind of work against their own interests. Um, and then Hobbes's thing, of course, is the war of all against all, which the sovereign comes in to, to mediate. So it's not unique to the far right um, in that regard. But when they appeal to it like that, it taps into certain kind of um, ideological components of what we might call popular wisdom. And there are plenty of ways that this kind of stuff about everyone just pursues their own interests isn't even as particular as something like Hobbes or Aristotle. It's your kind of like everyday understanding of, of um, economic self-interest or, or kind of like pop evolution psychology or something like this. And so, you know, it's, 
th those, you know, as you know from looking at the far right, is that the far right doesn't just look at the things that say, here's our our principles or whatever, and that we're going to stick with them. They have plenty of people that say, let's try to translate whatever we say into things that would fit within common sense terms. They don't always just say, we're a politics that's opposed to everything. They say, oh, we're really just the kind of common sense that you've departed from. All right. So we talked about the three sides of the three-way fight. We talked about the fascists, the anti-fascists. We talked a bit about the state. But there's maybe a fourth side developing which is the anti-anti-fascists, who are traditionally just fascists. But I think um, if you research the, uh, the scholar Andy No, uh, there's an entire worldview developing around this kind of hysterical anti-anti-fascism. And the way that I've seen it express itself most recently that's interesting is that he uh, took... Putin's claims of denazifying Ukraine very literally and said, Putin is an anti-fascist. This is an anti-fascist war. And the West needs to unite as anti-anti-fascists against Putin. And of course, this is totally deranged. But I think that um, the last four years and the way Antifa has been kind of elevated as this all-encompassing boogeyman of the far left, of liberation movements in general, has led a lot of people to see like uh, Antifa and cancel culture and critical race theory as this like international globalist conspiracy against the people or something like that. And um, another way that that gets expressed in maybe less hysterical ways was... Uh, Ben Burgess talking about Andy No on the Joe Rogan podcast. Did you happen to see that? I saw tweets related to it. That's that's my media intake sometimes. Yeah, I mean that's. <laughs> I haven't listened to Joe Rogan in quite a while. I was. I'm glad that Ben Burgess went on. I like Ben Burgess personally. He's been on the show, um, but basically, Andy No being milkshaked and uh, punched or whatever in Portland came up, and Ben Burgess said. Yeah, this is a bad look for the left. Leftists, first of all, um, you know, people really don't like them when they act this way. And, you know, I, he might as well be talking about the black bloc in general, I think, even if it's not Antifa. Um, but he also said, like, Andy, no, you know, you might not like what he writes about, but he's a journalist. And even if we really don't like a journalist, it's very dangerous, maybe a slippery slope to start attacking journalists. And... um you know, probably he doesn't like the idea of punching Nazis in general. Um, I don't want to assume that. But, uh, yeah, I guess um, there's a, a sort of a, uh, a concern amongst a lot of circles on the left and the right about extremism and street fighting in general. There's like this natural rejection of it um, as being like particularly unhealthy or unappealing or, um, you know, uh, demobilizing even. I think that maybe that's the best way to to understand the critique. Um, but you've got a whole chapter in your book about defending punching Nazis. So um, yeah, maybe maybe that's just set up for, for you to, to talk about what you think uh, philosophically, how, how can we defend punching Nazis or uh, milkshaking Nazis perhaps? Did you call Andy No a scholar there at the start of yeah, that? Yeah, as a joke. I, I don't think he would even call himself a scholar. I thought so. I was like, wait a second. I think there's I think there's the air quotes around <laughs> that one that you can't see when people are talking. I am in his book, though, and I appreciate that. He, he wrote me up in the book, and I, he did a really nice job. Oh, so you made an appearance mm -hmm. in that. In an international bestseller. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, there's a lot there. Um, ben Burgess, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, he, uh, you know, I tend to read stuff in, from him or see what his positions are, and I almost entirely disagree every time I see something from him. Um, uh, I don't think that, let me back it up. One of the core points that I understand about militant anti-fascism is that it should not be driven by optics. It's what are the best tactics that can, that can stifle and undermine far-right organizing uh, and you opt for those. That doesn't mean you always choose the right ones, but it means that the guiding decision is always one 
about out-organizing the other side. And so in that regard, you can't play to optics. So that is one of the parts I talk about in the, um, in the beginning of the chapter four, as you describe it. So chapter four ranges across quite a bit of material. The first is a criticism of um, some really well-known kind of general books on nonviolence and the effectiveness of that. So that, in, you know, in philosophical circles, that's the work of Erica Chenoweth that is evident there. And, and as I go through that, I talk, you know, the, the idea of optics has an entire political theory attached to it, that really political action is about persuading um, a third party. And I argue that that's not necessarily, um, that's not necessarily effective politically. Uh, and we always have to remember when, when people appeal to things like the civil rights movement um, or various other things, we have to recall that these movements, like in the 1960s, were incredibly unpopular. And we, we in historical memory, we somehow remember them as being much more widely popular than they were. But you go back and you read polls and, you know, people ask about Martin Luther King as an as an organizer or leader and they're you know saying he's got approval ratings in the 30s and things like this really what you need in political movements is critical mass um but that's a different story uh in that regard but the core out of it is that militant anti-fascism as i defend it has you know multiple planks to it and one is that it's it's an it's a way of organizing that is community self-defense and if people are really interested in that part um, I work a bit with some modern anarchist writers, contemporary anarchist writers who work on that material. I also um, draw on the work of Robert F. Williams and various other people um, for that. So that's section 4.4, so chapter 4, section 4 of that book. Um, and go through a little bit of the history and some of the philosophical concepts we can draw from that. But one of the other parts of that discussion is always to say one of the core things that goes back through the entirety of the three-way fight discussions and back through, uh, as insofar as those people that were working on that stuff were connected to anti-racist action or ARA in the 90s, is that the guiding theory has always been the tactics should always be the most effective with the least cost. And that something like the, like, violent, street violence, basically, punching Nazis, pitched battles in the streets, so on and so forth, um, only come at the very end of the process. And before that, there are all kinds of other techniques that you can try to use or tactics you can try to use to stifle that organizing. And they are preferable to that because we understand that, you know, a weakness of the movement could be if people get arrested and go to trial or go to prison and you don't have a network to support them while they're doing time, like that's a weakness within your movement in the present if it can't forecast for that future. So there are a lot of different moving parts and aspects to that. So I've been asked several times about um, Andy No being milkshaked. And, and I'll say what I've said in various other venues when asked is that I, I can't speculate on the particular motivations um, behind um, why No, was, why no uh, ended up getting milkshaked. What I can say out of that particular thing is the big problem is all the attention gets paid to know as a journalist, if you think he's a journalist, and I'm still not convinced of that, a lot of attention is paid to that and not so much attention, which really needs to be pay, uh, paid to the fact that basically the Portland Police Bureau acted as a propaganda wing for the far right group during that weekend by, um, by alleging all kinds of unreasonable things about putting quick dried cement into these milkshakes, which were disproven by Portland-based journalists who tried to see if they could create the concoction that police said were there. And in a lot of ways, you know, it was a red herring about looking at what I think was one of the most important aspects that came out of it was precisely the way that the police really tried to back um, and produce this propaganda um, to create sympathy with these far-right groups. And I, I think a lot more attention needs to be paid to that part. Yeah, and if we were to criticize anti-fascism or anti-fascist or an individual anti-fascist activity, which I think we ought to, you know, we, we should always be critical. One way to criticize it is that, you know, violence is wrong. The optics are bad. Another way to criticize it is um, what are what are the goals of anti-fascism? What is it trying to achieve? And is are these tactics furthering those goals? Um, and is it furthering the goals in a way that makes sense? And that's kind of the terrain we have to be 
thinking about militant activity in general. And that's just not the way Ben Burgess was talking about it. And I think it's probably because he's not a militant. You know, he's not, I don't think he's a revolutionary, which is fine. You know, we have different politics. But yeah, that's, I guess that's kind of the challenge of being in the situation where the left is perceived as everything from like a black block in Portland to the DSA and then trying to argue about what the correct line is or what the correct tactics are within that mass when really there's serious political differences, which is why I, I do think it's important to try to theorize some categories of militant anti-fascism, liberal anti-fascism. Um, yeah, so that's just a, a long way of saying you're doing very important work of theorizing this stuff, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. I, I think something that's really important in that theorization, too, is um, one thing I really wanted my book to land on, and, and you already mentioned it, is, again, I think it's it's really funny, and this came out in the in the debate with my editor about how to title the book, because it had a lot of different titles over time. And I, it's funny because I really fought, um, metaphorically speaking, obviously, um, for the subtitle to be Punching Nazis and Fighting White Supremacy because I wanted both those things in there to be distinguished on the title so that you'd wonder, well, wait a second, what, what is the difference that means that the author wanted both those things to be present there? And I think it's reflected in the division and even the, the themes present in chapter four and chapter five is... People show up to chapter four because they want to see the stuff about the philosophical defense of punching Nazis. And what I do there is I show, look, there is a consistent anti-fascist thread in Western philosophy um, that, that would be on the side of this and defend it. And there are philosophical arguments in favor of this, despite the fact that many of the big names um, in contemporary philosophy are, on, are liberal anti-fascists who are critical of, of um, militant groups. And then five was the one I really wanted to highlight, which is the connection. It's the educational piece in a sense of um, of tying some of this back to settler colonialism and the issue of decolonization, um, which is, again, one of the things that when I started writing this that I think people are slowly acclimating to, um, especially in, in the United States where I grew up, is that the concept of um, settler colonialism where we're conceiving of um, what happened in the process of indigenous dispossession was not something that was at the forefront of a lot of um, militant and revolutionary leftist groups. There were aspects of it, but not necessarily um, trying to put it within the overall picture. It's more prevalent in, in Canada, but one thing I wanted to do is try to tie those literatures together, and not a lot of um, people do so. Now, again, I would say Looking back through this some more, I think James Boggs was onto something in the in the '60s for this. I think there's elements of W.E.B. Du Bois. There's obviously a lot of militant publications um, that started talking about settlerism um, from uh, you know black liberation groups in the in the 1970s and 1980s um, that were connected to kind of Marxist-Leninist movements. So I don't want to say there wasn't a connection to this, right? But I want to say, at least in some of the modern stuff about anti-fascism, there wasn't a lot of connection to looking about what, how whiteness emerged as settler colonialism and how this has been talked about by a number of theorists. And so I wanted to draw those two literatures together. So I think it's really important to, to look at that, is that, you know, the process, the ultimate fight um, that, to extinguish fascism in the far right, of course, is, is an anti-capitalist movement, but one in settler colonial societies that has to fight to overthrow settler colonialism. And in the long run, that's going to involve um, working with um, indigenous struggles and indigenous groups um, for their liberation as well. And so there is an extensive discussion of this in that book, which I hoped um, would draw people's attention to some of that. It's something I'm still trying to work on. I just wanted to get, I had to get some of it out there just to give everyone a hint or a taste of what, what some of that was. And then hopefully um, we're able to expand that in the future. Yeah, I'm glad you are because I think there's a danger of just like a, there's like this kind of anti-Antifa worldview that um, hysterically uh, blames anti-fascists as, you know, the, the, the root of all evil. It's, it's, there's a danger that leftists will see fascism as like the uh, or, or fascists or individual racists 
as like the the source of all evil. And if we can just get rid of them or fight them or punch them all, then we'll be living in a utopia or a better world. Whereas anti-fascism is really just one element in a larger militant movement that includes, of course, indigenous struggle and a lot of other really serious struggles that have to work together to, uh, you know, destroy not just the fascists, but also the, the bourgeois nation state. And, and I think there, that's where you see some of the, the contradictions in the strengths and weaknesses is that militant anti-fascism is very commonly organized as a united or, united or popular front, bringing a lot of disparate groups together to combat an immediate threat. And as we know, once that immediate threat of street organizing recedes, that they, the very commonly groups fracture when they return to understand, like their conceptions of, well, what's the long-term, um, what's the long-term fight? And that, that entails different tactics. And, and I think that's one of the, you know, when you go back to some of the original texts of the three-way fight and some of the other people conceiving of um, anti-fascist work and, and various things like that, it's, it's always in that part. It's the recognition that, that there are systemic conditions um, and we try to understand what those systemic conditions are that give rise to far-right movements. Um, and ultimately, the struggle is against these system, the system and the systemic conditions. But that doesn't mean you just want to give up and cede the ground um, to far-right groups. Yeah. Well said. One last question. Will you or Three-Way Fight be participating in the anti-fascist international convergence this August in Moscow? uh wait what's that putin is right around the time the war started putin announced uh or um you know someone in putin's military actually announced that there would be this uh uh anti-fascist um conference to create actually i think someone said it was to create an anti-fascist international um held in moscow this august including get this pakistan china the united arab emirates Saudi Arabia, Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, and India. So the British, <laughs> uh, the uh, the BJP, will be participating in Putin's anti-fascist conference. Oh, so boy. you know, three-way fight should feeling, get in there and you know, a, nudge them in the right direction. I had a feeling that's what you were referring to. Yeah, I think I'll uh, I think I'll pass on that <laughs> one. I've got some I've got some other conferences to go to where we're going to be doing some interesting work. Uh, um, looking at some of the issues that that I've raised on here, so yeah, I don't think uh, don't think I'll be heading to Moscow anytime soon. Well, it sounds like you're just uh, uh, sore that you didn't get an invite. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I said what what thing <laughs> I never heard that. <laughs> um, well, thanks so much for joining us and talking uh, to us about this stuff. Anything you want to plug before we go? Yeah, so uh, again, I'd remind people that. Um, that you know, I'm the author of Philosophy of Anti-Fascism, um, Punching Nazis and Fighting White Supremacy. Um, there's a lot in there for everyone. If you're into philosophy, especially that you want to review some of that stuff, um, I think that there's a lot to be found in there. I'm going to pitch a couple other things here for a moment um, that people may not know. Is that um, I was part of an author collective for a project that was written under a pseudonym of M.I. Asthma. Uh, and it's six anti-capitalist authors of various stripes um, getting together. And we composed a what is now a book called On Necrocapitalism, a plague journal. And it covers about the first year, first 14 months um, as of the pandemic as it, as it happened in um, North America. We didn't really get started writing until April of, of 2020. So about, four, yeah, so about 14 months after that, we put it together as a book. That's published by Chris Blebedeb in Montreal. It came out in September of 2021. It develops some of the ideas that are found in philosophy of anti-fascism, and that doesn't necessarily mean uh, I'm the author developing them. Um, and it looks at some of those movements. Uh, so I would you know, recommend that. I think it's relatively affordable, and at least for a while, and it still may be going, that Chris Blebedeb offers the digital version at a significant discount. Um, so I would recommend uh, that if people are interested as well. It covers some of the stuff about the, especially the uprising um, from summer of 2020. There's some discussion in there. And then I would just, again, put in a plug for the three-way fight blog 
um, because I think that they do, they, we, I don't know, um, do excellent work looking at this. And they've, they've had quite a bit recently of um, bringing in multiple authors to debate different um, positions on recent events like um, some anti-fascist protest work in um, Portland, Oregon, I think it, what, in the early fall, and then um, differing views on, on how to understand the convoy. And so they've done, you know, they're doing quite a bit of work on that. And um, if I ever get a chance to sit down and write, I might try to bring some more stuff um, back around to them. So those are the those are really the three um, major things I'd like to plug, given a chance. Yeah, great. I especially like that series of essays debating uh, tactics in Portland this fall. That was really perfect and really sorely needed. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us, and uh, have a good night. You can get back to your garden now.